he, he was shouting, Mom, Mom, and it sounded like they just connected. And he was like, it's me, Yusuf, I think his name was, and it's me. And suddenly, ah, oh, they disconnected. Oh. And he went wild. He kind of like had this PTS thing. He just needed to talk to her so badly. And he he just flipped and he started throwing chairs around and flinging things and um, people were getting hit with things and um, I I was there and I had to do something uh, and he like flung this big chair against the wall and I ran up and I grabbed his hand and I was saying you're safe now you're safe it's okay it's okay hello this is Sally McNally welcome back to the bleeding truth I'm here tonight with my daughter Bridget How's it going? So we wanted to start off today's podcast by first thanking you guys so much for all the positive feedback that we've gotten. It's been really overwhelming and we are really grateful that you guys are interested and excited about Sally's stories. So thank you so much for all of that. I'm not sure what today's story is going to be. So Sally, do you mind setting the scene? Well, I've been watching the news a lot lately and uh, it's all stories from Ukraine and the awful war Uh, that's happening over there with Russia. And it uh, brings my mind back to a war that I experienced when I lived in Saudi Arabia, uh, the war with Iraq. Um, I have some stories I'd like to share with you tonight about that. All right. Well, I'm really interested in hearing about it. But before we get into your story, we have a couple uh, quick announcements and reminders. So number one would be listener discretion is advised. A lot of Sally's stories can be disturbing to some people. So listen at your own discretion. Also, Sally is on call tonight. So if we have to take a pause because she gets called into work, we will and we'll get back to the rest of the story another time. And and then the third thing is Thank you guys already for starting to ask questions to our question forum. If you guys didn't know already, we are, you know, letting you guys ask Sally any question regarding midwife stuff, yoga stuff, prenatal, anything even to do with her stories, and we'll answer them on the podcast. So we're going to get started. We already have two questions, so I'm going to ask you, Sally, we'll we'll do that, and then we'll get right into her story. That's so great. I'm so happy people have questions. <laughs> Alrighty, so... Starting with Sarah Cardenas from Santa Paula, she wants to know what helped you decide to go the midwife route and where and when in your life did you start having the passion? Was it before nursing school, during or years into your career? Oh, thank you so much for that wonderful question, Sarah. Um, I remember uh, when I was finishing up with my um, registered nursing Uh, I got a job uh, working in a gynae unit for a little while um, in the hospital where I trained. Um, And I had two roads uh, diverging in a wood and I didn't know which one to take. On one hand, I loved anything to do with psychiatry and I wanted to study that. And the other road was midwifery and I wanted to study that. Um, So I remember that the uh, this week I got an, uh, an invitation to come for an interview as a student for psych- psychiatric nursing. And I went to it and it was great fun. I really enjoyed it. It was the most fun interview I've ever had in my life. Um, 
and uh, I really felt like I nailed it. Um, I even had one of the, the people interviewing me doing a headstand during the interview. <laughs> like really was like that it was really fun because I they wanted to know all about my yoga. But um I was then went back to work of course and I was working on the unit and I remember um the 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 uh, head nun of the hospital remember the medical missionaries of Mary um <laughs> she she came to me and I was in the middle of work and I was all sweaty and, you know, body fluids and working <laughs> hard. And um, it was hard work then. And she came to me and she says, they're interviewing for the midriffy and I've put your name in. Oh, wow. She said, come to my office right now. And I, I was like, wow, I kind of do want to do midriffy, but I've just done this other interview. Uh, so I went to her office and she sat me down and she said, now, there's only a few spots for this. And I want you to go over and uh, give the best interview you've ever done in your life. And I said, but look, at I'm all dirty. I'm coming from the unit. I'm covered in body fluids. And she said, you're grand. Here is my underarm deodorant. And she gave me <laughs> a roller because I probably smelt like I was working. And. I had to go from one building over to the next building. The other building was an old building that was the, the midwifery unit. And this is where they were having the the interview. And it was raining outside. And she brought me to the door of the hospital and she put on me her um, cape. You know, you see nurses sometimes with big, long capes. Mm -hmm. And she put her cape on me and she handed me an umbrella and she said go into your future and I oh, wow. I remember in my little white shoes and my little white nurse's hat and my little white dress and her cape and this umbrella and I remember running in the rain over to that building and thinking this is what I'm supposed to be doing it's midwifery and I felt so sure of it oh, that wow. uh, I, I've never look back it's been just the best and I can remember the first uh, day that I got to actually be a student on the unit um, I came to the unit um, and I uh, there was a stairs up to where they were delivering the babies and I came in all kind of shy and nervous and I, I don't think I'd actually ever seen a baby being born at that stage and suddenly this uh, midwife shouted down the stairs, are you Sally? And I said, I am. And she says, get your ass up here right now. And I ran up the stairs and somebody hung over my neck and around my body, this big, long rubber apron. And they pushed me into this labor room and there was the baby crowning. And they put gloves on me and they brought me over. And it was like amazing I remember they took my hand and this was my first day oh, as a student wow. in the unit and they placed my hands on the baby's head crowning and I can remember that nurse whispering in my ear just let it out slowly let it out slowly and her hands on top of my hands guiding my hands it was the best ever it was it often reminded me of you know uh somebody making a, a precious piece of pottery out of a, a piece of clay it felt like this most beautiful um little bean was coming out of you know this 
this amazing uh, moment. And uh, the mother just seemed so peaceful. And yet, of course, she was in the throes of having a baby. She couldn't stop pushing and the baby just came out so nice. And uh, the midwife looked at me and she says, there you are now. That's number one of 40 because we have <laughs> 40. And I'm like, wow. Of course, I have a lot wow. to learn. Uh, but yeah, that, that, uh, that was my first experience of being a, a young student midwife we called ourselves pupil midwives that's incredible it was great I really when you were describing that I could really picture like you illustrated it so well of you (laughs) running in the rain and that all really happened it was like it was so wonderful what a great nun she was yeah yeah she was really that's amazing well, great question. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Alrighty, so we have one more. As a reminder, you also you don't have to be um, you don't have to say your name for the the questions. You can be totally anonymous as well, so that's completely fine. This question is anonymous, and they want to know what would you suggest to somebody who experienced a traumatic birth and difficult postpartum period and who is about to give birth again how to deal with the fear of another C-section that is required. And further, do you think C-sections can be avoided more in the U.S.? Do we jump to using them too frequently, or is it just easier for OBGYNs? And then they added, not a question, I just think you're amazing, Sally. Hope to have you during my first pregnancy. That is really sweet. That's so adorable. Thank you so much. And of course, any um, thought of surgery, it's it's so invasive, right? You think, oh my gosh, it's it's huge to have to have had a cesarean section. And many young mothers who have um, their first baby unexpectedly by cesarean section, they are suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress often. And uh, they, they need to find a way to talk about it, write about it you know, shout about it, but get it out some way to get it out so that it it's uh, the, the, you know, the experience of the first birth doesn't become now the experience of the second birth. So what I would advise is um, to find somebody to talk to and to describe in detail everything you can remember about the first birth. And then when you find that you come across a part of the story that makes you cry, you might uh, stop and investigate and explore that. Were you afraid at that part? Uh, Did you feel violated? Did you feel out of control? Did you feel terrified? You know, what was that emotion? And stay with it until you understand it and then go on and stop every time the emotions come up. I have a little uh, hypnosis script um, that I should share um, for you for for that, that just to, it's like a little self-hypnosis script to go to go through what you have been through, the reality of, of your first birth, and then to create in your mind uh, what you would love for the second birth to to go like the second birth, if it's going to be cesarean. Um, then you it'll be planned, it'll be organised, there won't be any labour to begin. So right there, 
it's going to be a little bit easier that way. And to visualise yourself getting ready that morning uh, or that afternoon and going to the hospital and um, being happy that it's a beautiful thing. You're going to go and meet this beautiful little child and um, and then to to visualise the baby coming to you as well, that both of you are, are on this journey together Um but then to visualise the nurses getting you ready, putting up the IV, getting into your gown and all the while visualising yourself with a beautiful smile and um, your partner there and, you know, all of the joy of a, of a birth and not the fear of, you know, maybe the fear and the um, the sadness that a woman can go through when she doesn't have the birth that she's planned. And it can cause a lot of sadness inside. Um, And some women grieve for years when they don't have a birth that they had planned or that they they end up with a birth that they don't understand what happened. Why, Why did I have that happen to me? Why is my baby in the NICU? Why does my baby not want to breathe or breastfeed or you know there's sometimes they're left with the question and I think it's really important very soon after a birth especially if it's been traumatic to talk about it to talk the next day to ask questions get your your obstetrician your midwife in and and sit them and say tell me what what happened why did it end up like that because often during the event uh, it might be an emergency uh, or uh, if communication didn't happen, uh, if it's not a shared decision, you feel like uh, something precious has been taken away that you can't ever get back again. Um, I know I teach childbirth classes and I just love women preparing their their birth plan and getting it in their mind the way they want it. Now, making a birth plan doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get exactly that Mm -hmm. because sometimes we used to say, how do you make God laugh? Show him your birth plan, right? But there (laughs) might be one or two wee things in there that, you know, you're not going to end up getting. Um, But if it goes completely the other way and you end up uh, having a cesarean section, that can be very difficult. I, I understand. But then to make it your own. If you know you're going to have a cesarean section, come in armed with the things you would for for a nice, normal, natural birth. Bring your music, you know, uh, bring your hypnosis scripts, bring your partner, bring anything that you think is going to help you, a focal point. Um, bring your birth plan and, and put these things on a birth plan and talk to your obstetrician and say, you know, um, I had this type of experience the first time and now this is the way I'd like it. If possible, what can we do here to to make my birth as um, joyful as possible? Yeah. Right? And so I have a question just because, you know, I'm, I haven't gone through this. When when a woman has a C-section for a first birth, why is it that it's required for the follow up birth or any future ones? That's such a great question. Thanks for that, Bridget, because um, some obstetricians and, and anesthesiologists especially are going to worry that um, the C-section scar can open 
during labour, that Mm. the pressure of the contractions and the stretching and the thinning of the lower uterine segment during labour can open that scar. And I've seen that happen. I saw I saw a a baby over in Saudi who had his wee arm out of the cesarean section and into the mother's abdomen. Oh, wow. When they came in. Yeah. I mean, they worked out fine. They were rushed to the OR and the baby was born just fine. But that's a very rare, rare occasion. And. Uh, Why that happened to that lady was she'd had multiple cesarean sections, I think four or five. Um, And of course, uh, over time, that uh, scar area is being used over and over again. So in that case, then, um, if it's if it's being used over and over again, doesn't that also make that area just weaker instead of, you know, the possibility of doing a, a natural childbirth still? Have well, you seen natural uh, childbirths still occur after a C-section previously? Many, many. I've seen many women deliver their babies naturally following a cesarean section. Okay. Yes, I have, and it is possible. Um, but the hospitals have to be careful, you know, because uh, they don't want to put you in danger. So they have criteria to keep you safe. Things mm. like this. They want you to keep your BMI below like 37, 37 or below. I think that's the number now. And okay. um, you can't be diabetic. You can't have a baby that's over like nine and a half pounds in there. And oh, wow. um, I think that's the weight. The baby has to be less than that. Um, yeah. And you can only have had one cesarean section before. So gotcha. uh, just th- there's there's safety uh, rules that should be followed. And um but the, the, so we call it now a TOLAC, a trial of labor after cesarean. And mm-hmm. then if you are successful and safely deliver your baby by your vagina, then it becomes a vaginal birth after C-section, a VBAC. And uh, most hospitals that we deliver babies in here will allow you to have a trial of labor after Cesarean. They don't let you be induced and and they won't let you, you know, be augmented with Pitocin very often. Uh, so the, it's very controlled. There has to be extra staff, you know, involved in, in, in that care. But um, mostly if you fall in those safety criteria, then they'll let you do it. So just just looking back at our question, they were wondering could C-sections be more avoided in the U.S.? Yeah, I think, you know, to be honest, I think yes. I think that um, women sometimes get epidurals too early uh, and then mm. it might stop the labour and then it seems like she's having this extra, extra long labour when in actual fact we just put her out of labour. And I think what happens is we have to give you a litre of fluid before your C-section and that washes away um, a lot of the the oxytocin, your own natural Mm. uh, hormone that's making you contract. And sometimes after an epidural, there might be a little dip in your blood pressure uh, and then you have to get another litre of fluid and that again washes away the oxytocin. Um, so that might lead to a longer early labour stage or active labour. Gotcha. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I just learned a lot too. <laughs> so thank you. I think that but was a I really think, good question. Yeah, but I think that we should talk more about that because there's there's a lot for us all to learn in that area. Mm. Um, like uh, positioning is really important. Now we're all learning how important it is to be in more of an upright position uh, to allow the baby to come down, even if you have an epidural. And also if the baby's, you know, coming down a little crooked or... Uh, maybe facing the front of a mom's pelvis, that might be a longer labour. Um, and to really get working on positioning the mother's body to help the baby gravitate down uh, and uh, come through that pelvis. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot that we can do uh, rather than just immediately go for a C-section. But we we uh, have uh, great bundles now um where we follow in the hospital that actually just happened to me tonight up there in the hospital um, one of our ladies uh, she was making slow progress and mm-hmm. um, uh, so there was a decision made that she should have a cesarean and a very brave little charge nurse um, and she's young and she's going to be a midwife herself she came and she she stood up for the patient and said uh, well, it does. What you're asking for is not falling into the criteria. Uh, she needs a little more time before we can say she's, you know, failure to progress in labor. Mm-hmm. So um, we got more time and lo and behold, the next thing she's pushing and uh, we're so happy and pleased. Oh, wonderful. And we had a lovely lo- normal birth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was just today then. That was early. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's there's a, you know, like across America, there's like 30% C-section rate. Wow. Um, we had managed to get our rate down here, um, like 27, 24% at one stage, I heard. And uh, yeah, it's a I lot. know that your goal has always been natural childbirth. Yes. Yeah, you teach yeah. your natural childbirth classes. For a long time as well. Yeah, I loved that class. Yes, yeah. so much. Um, I, and, you know, when we're admitting a woman in the hospital, one of the questions is, do you have pain medication plan? Uh, or what's your plan for, for your birth? And um, so many women, there's a few that will say, epidural, sign me up, I'm ready now. But <laughs> and most women, they have a kind of a secret desire to have a natural birth. They want to see what it's like Um, but then when labour kicks in and uh, their mind starts playing tricks with them they'll believe the thoughts because especially first time moms they've never had a baby before and the mind is going what is this this can't be right there's something wrong and her mind might be shouting at her you're going to die and because and she might believe it because she's never experienced something like this happening in her body before Learning natural childbirth uh, coping techniques can really help a woman be ready for that so that when her mind starts doing that, she can look up at her monkey mind and say, it's okay, we're safe. It's uncomfortable, maybe a little bit, but we're safe and it's only for a short time and we're going to get through this. Wow. But there's, you know, a lot of um, little tricks that we have to help a woman with that. Well, absolutely fantastic. 
Um, thank you again for that question. And I know you're talking about your hypnosis videos. I'll also link in the description of this podcast. Uh, Sally has another YouTube channel where she does some hypnosis videos and also yoga and relaxation stuff, guided imagery. So if you are interested in seeing some of that, you can definitely check them out there. We'll also be hopefully making a lot more of the hypnosis content. So that could be very helpful as well. All right, so it's story time. <laughs> so story time. Um, uh, so when I was uh, living and working over in Saudi Arabia, there was a, a war with Iraq um, and Saddam Hussein uh, was very angry with Saudi. Uh, he was bringing the war to um, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, so he was firing Scud missiles in our direction where I lived. Of course, oh, none of them reached us. Um, but whenever there was a Scud missile coming uh, towards Saudi, all of these alarms would go off. And I kind of get a little uneasy when I'm watching CNN and I can hear those uh, sirens oh, wow. in the background. For Ukraine. Yeah, it, it gives me a wee bit of... Um, like my own kind of PTSD. And then, of course, there's Wolf Blitzer. How old is Wolf Blitzer? He's still on the go. He was the <laughs> same fella in the news on CNN. CNN, we could get that. And I can remember him saying, and the alarms are going off and there's scud missiles and going in the direction. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's like living the past. But wow. anyway, um, our uh, our experience with that um, was that uh, we were afraid that the missiles that were being shot in our direction were going to be full of or covered in nerve gas and mustard gas, um, which, yeah. of course, are both deadly uh, and horrible um, chemical uh, nerve agents that are, of course, banned throughout the world. Um, so we were terrified of this. And in our apartments where we lived, uh, when when this war was going on, we had our windows taped up. So all around the crack between the wall and the window uh, window ledge, we'd have to put a really thick, big tape all yeah. around there. And then we'd have to have our bath full of water in the event that we were covered with mustard gas or nerve gas, that we would immediately jump into oh the water. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yes, we had to keep the bath full of water. That was... Um, part of the rules and our hospital was um, emptied out of all the regular patients they were all sent down to the county hospital um, which is not as nice as our county hospital it was a very scary place but even our pregnant women were all sent off down there and the hospital then was prepared for uh, casualties coming from the front line of the war oh wow uh, yeah, and I can remember uh, setting it up and getting ready. And we had like weeks to get this ready. And we were like, what war? What war? And then every now and then siren and we'd run and hide. And oh. But then um, we had no patience for a wee while. And each bed was all sorted with bandages and IV tubing and IV fluids. And, um, and then um, it happened. Somebody said, now the soldiers are coming from the front line. There had been tent hospitals out in the front uh, mm -hmm. fighting, and now they were going to be flown to our area. So um, 
First, I had to train in the decontamination tank, which was right outside the hospital. It was built just specially so that when we bring people in, uh, mm -hmm. if they were covered in gases, we would have special way of washing them down. Now, this is the desert. It's, this is a place where you can fry an egg on the rock. And I've done that. Oh, wow. Fry your egg on a rock. Yeah. Um, it's so hot. Uh, we had to wear these decontamination outfits. Uh, so they were really big, clunky, old fashioned style, kind of like um, a big diving suit and a big, huge helmet. Holy smokes. So we train and we'd uh, spend. A hazmat suit. I think it was like, yeah, it was hazmat suit old style. <laughs> and it was like 40 minutes in the suit. Uh, and then maybe 10, 15 minutes out of the suit. And we had to train like that to get used to the heat because you were sweating wow. in there. And then we'd, we'd have to train that get, we'd get out of the suit without touching anything and we'd shower ourselves, breathe a little bit and then back into the suit. But one funny story there was uh, we had these uh, little uh, men from the Philippines who were um, nurses' aides and they were helping us to train. So we were the, the decontaminators and they were the ones supposedly coming in covered with the, the nerve agents and stuff. So um, we had to wash them down. So they'd come in pretending that they were sick and we'd put them on a trolley and wash them down with a hose. Oh. <laughs> that, that was really weird. But uh, we had to learn how to do it in a timely fashion and wash every part wow. of them. Um, but uh, then somebody said, what if the mustard gas gets in your eyes? So somebody had this great idea that we should wash it out with salty water. Um, so somebody had like some big container and uh, we were practicing washing out. And the poor guys, their eyes were all red and burning because it was way too salty, whatever oh. mixture somebody had made up. And there was four Filipino men sitting there and they looked like they were really sad crying like raccoons eyes um, oh, man. I know I was so sorry for them so we decided that it should be just plain water <laughs> but then then we were um pretty much ready we uh we were told to load up the buses go to the airport and load up the buses so um we we, we went off like ready load up to... the buses with patients yes with patients wow um and we didn't know what kind of injuries they were going to have, what kind of patients we were going to have. And you're trained as a midwife, not yeah. as a frontline. Yeah. So there were like little ambulances yeah. uh, with like a place for four people on stretches. Um, so uh, I remember I, I was in charge of one and I went out to the airport, I think like six times and brought uh, people back. Wow. But I remember being so shocked uh, they were all Egyptian soldiers that we picked up mm -hmm. uh, and uh, some of them had lost their limbs, their eyes. Some of them had lost parts of their hands and um, they were just blown to smithereens. Um, but I remember this one really young guy and he kept on saying um, he couldn't see because his eyes were all covered. And uh, I was trying to calm him down because he was terrified. He didn't know where he was. He thought he was going home. And yeah. uh, we said, no, you're in Saudi Arabia now and uh, we're bringing you to the hospital. And he was freaking out. And he was saying, no, I want to go home. I want to go home. Um, and he pulled out his wallet and he said, this is my mother. And he kept on trying to point to where he thought the picture was. Um, and he said, that's my mother. 
um, you must tell her where I am. You must tell her where I am. And he oh. must have been like about 18 or 19. Oh, poor so fella. Sad. So I remember telling him, we'll find your mother. We'll tell her. We'll make sure that she knows where you are. But then when we got to the hospital, um, the hospital was just filling up and all those empty beds that we had ready, all of a sudden, like within a day, they were full. The hospital was buzzing with all of this activity. And, the, and you had to wash all of them down? Well, no, these had been washed down out in the desert. Okay. But uh, this decontamination tank was just in case the nerve gas, the mustard gas got to where we were, I guess. Okay, gotcha. Um but anyway, um, sorry about that confusing part of the story. Um, so um, the contest started. Uh, who had the most shrapnel in their body? Uh, each soldier was given a little glass jar by the bedside. And every day we'd go around cleaning their wounds. Uh, and these were the kind of wounds that you couldn't pack or close over. Uh, you had to keep it open oh. because it healed from the inside to the outside. And, right. and that way it would push the shrapnel out of their oh, limb. Wow. I know it was horrible. Some of them, of course, needed major surgery. Yeah. But a lot of them ha- had uh, these huge big chunks of metal like sticking down into their um, body. Um, so sometimes we'd be able to like clean it and uh, after a few days we'd be able to pick it out with a, a forceps and put it into their jar and then the contest was on who has the the most shrapnel? were they all like in on it yeah they were all um you know uh and they were so interesting some of them were like teachers some of them were oh, wow. you know like bankers some of them were soldiers themselves yeah. but they all like uh volunteered to come and help the Saudis uh, and uh, poor guys they got put on the front line it was really, wow. really sad um, so all of the casualties that were in that hospital were Egyptian there was no Saudis there were no Americans um, and, uh, and one day I remember one poor fella he he was big big strong man uh he had like a big wound on his back but he was able to walk around and he was on this phone with they had this phone that we pushed to the bedside and he was trying to call his mother uh in Egypt and mm-hmm. the line was really poor and he was like he was shouting, Mom, Mom, and it sounded like they just connected. And he was like, it's me, Yusuf, I think his name was, and it's me. And suddenly, ah, they disconnected. Oh. And he went wild. He kind of like had this PTS thing. He just needed to talk to her so badly. And he he just flipped and he started throwing chairs around and flinging things and um, people were getting hit with things and um, I I was there and I had to do something uh, and he like flung this big chair against the wall and I ran up and I grabbed his hand and I was saying you're safe now you're safe it's okay it's okay and he just slumped down onto the floor I can still see him in the white pajamas of all things white pajamas and uh, the little blood stain coming out onto his back and him crying and crying like like a baby and calling for his mother and I thought it was just the saddest of things and um poor guy yeah poor guy 
Uh, and then the last one that really stands out in my mind was a very young soldier who had horrific injuries. Uh, his legs had been blown off, half of his bottom was blown off, his genitals were blown off, and he was actually dying uh, with us. Um, but I can remember um, every day holding him in my arms and uh, we used to kind of take turns with them um, because he was like a big child. He was so sad and he, he, he held me this day and I had his head uh, like on my shoulder and I was kind of rocking him back and forth because there wasn't a whole lot we could do. Wow. You know, it was like it was down to the basic oh human, human contact, human touch. And he was calling me mother, mother, mother. And it was so sad. And it was like, what really hits me about these soldiers, all of the ones that stood in my mind thought about their mother when life was so hard, you know. And of course, I see mothers, I see women becoming mothers. And uh, we may not, you know, know how important our job is or how the effect of our love for our children can be. But, you know, to to witness these soldiers hurting so much and they weren't looking for their lovers or, you know, they were looking for their mothers. If they could just be with their mothers, everything, everything would be better. Making me tear up. I'm sorry. It's okay. But uh, for anybody who's listening to this, if you're a mother, our jobs are so important. Uh, You know, the... Well, the love that we pour into our babies and our our children, uh, it comes back to us. It does. I love you, Mom. <laughs> so, well, the poor soldiers, right? Uh, they went through this war. They got blown to smithereens. So the Saudis were very appreciative. So this day, these dignitaries, um, princes and uh, people from the government came to give each soldier a gift, a gift of a certain amount of money and a very expensive watch. Uh, So uh, each soldier, they went to each bed and they presented this great gift and it was such a wonderful thing. Um, And uh, then they left and each soldier had a bit of money and he had this lovely watch. Uh, It was a lovely watch, mind you. (laughs) But um, the next day when I came on duty... There was a big fuss and armed, uh, the armed guards and soldiers, because it was an army hospital, remember, they were shouting and they were going around saying that there was thieves uh, after being arrested and uh, they would find the money and they would find the watches that were stolen. So the girls told me that during the night, uh, two housekeepers had stolen two of the watches and two soldiers amount of money that they had been given. Oh, jeez. I know. So, and of course they were arrested and thrown in the little jail that was connected to the hospital. And the word was that they were going to get their hands chopped off that Friday because that is what happens to a thief. A thief will have their right hand uh, chopped off. Um, And the idea is that uh, they won't eat uh, with uh, they, they they would clean their hand with their left they would clean their bottom with their left hand so they're not going to eat with that hand so of course there's right-handed and left-handed people over there but that was the idea that they would take off the right hand and then they would starve to death because they wouldn't eat with the dirty hand right 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that that was to be their fate. They were going to get their hand chopped off on that Friday, which was, and I think Friday was the next day. Um, and I knew these girls. I knew these girls. Oh, and I, wow. uh, you know, worked alongside them for a long time. And I loved them and I knew all their families. And of course, I knew they came from really poor areas in the Philippines. And uh, they were sending, you know, their money home to their family and uh, I don't know what got into them that they thought that this was a good idea. So um, I went to uh, the head captain and I went in and I sat down. I said, please let me talk to the girls. Let me get the watches and the money back. And he said, no, they will pay the punishment and that's all. And then they're going back to jail. And I said, please there must be some way this is not a, a punishment you should do for somebody who's not Saudi. They, you know, uh, are not from this country. And he said, no, they broke our law. This oh, is wow. our punishment. So I begged and pleaded with him. And he said, if they admit to their sin, I will put them on the plane back to the Philippines tonight if they admit to what they've done. And I said, OK, let me go talk to them. So he allowed me to go down and talk to them. And the two of them were sitting there in the corner saying the rosary. They were praying, saying the rosary. And I came in and I said, girls, do you know the trouble that you're in? Do you know um, that your the plan is to have your hands amputated? And the two of them looked up and they said, we didn't do it. It's not us. We're innocent. We didn't do it. And um, I I looked at one and I said, uh, are, are you guilty? Did you do it? And she said, uh, no. And immediately my sense was she did it. I I knew and I knew my time was short. Yeah. I had to get the truth out. Um, so I asked the guard to take this one into the next uh, cell so that I could uh, talk to the weak one. <laughs> so I separated them, right? Yeah. And uh, the the weaker one, I said to her, "You have to tell me the truth. You you have to save yourself. You can be on the plane home to your family tonight if you just tell me the truth." And she was shaking her head, saying, "No, no, I didn't. I didn't. I I would never do that. I didn't do that." And I said, "Tell me the truth." And I remember grabbing her by the arms and slamming her up against the oh wall. I said, God. "You have to tell me the truth." And it was like an exorcism, it was like the truth. And uh, she she immediately then said, I did it and I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have done it. So um, she then, I then I could go to the other one and say, now she's admitted it. And so the two of them then admitted their crime. I brought them back to the captain and he said, great, now you must give me the watches and the money. Well, the girls had gone that morning and sent the money home to the Philippines. Oh. Yeah, they did, couldn't send the watches. So uh, the watches were found in their possession. But in the end, um, I had to run uh, to two Egyptian doctors that I knew because the money was in Egyptian currency oh and I had God. to like beg and plead, please give me the money so that I can save the girls and uh, we'll give you back the money in, in, as soon as we can. And uh, that's what happened. We reproduced the same amount of money. We reproduced oh the watches and the girls were sent home. Wow. <laughs> yes, that's I know. Wild. Yeah. 
I got a letter from one of them like about six months later and she told me that she was praying for me and she was so grateful. Um, yeah. Wow. I, I wish I could remember their names. They were so sweet. That is really wild. Yeah. But I, I will tell you about um, things like that that I would have witnessed, you know, that are pretty horrific. I'll tell you in another podcast because this has gone on too long. Stop saying that. It's been great. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Bridget. Well, that was an incredible story. You you really are a great storyteller. I get so wrapped up into it. Aww. And I feel like I'm reading a movie script of your life. <laughs> thanks a million. Thanks You're a million. Fun. And thanks everybody who might be listening. Don't forget to uh, like and subscribe and tell your friends. If you know anybody who'd be interested in these stories, please uh, send them our way. We're very grateful that you're here tonight listening to us. Thanks again. Yeah. And if you want to ask her a question, I'll make sure to put that link again in the description and we'll answer it on the next podcast. Have a wonderful night. Thanks so much. Thanks a million. Thanks a million. <laughs>